It's been called the universal panacea. Exercise has a positive effect on almost all health measures, and governments are actively campaigning for us to do more. But at the opposite end of the scale, the realisation that some people may be addicted to exercise is gaining traction. Welcome to the BMJ Podcast, I'm Duncan Jarvis, and last week I talked to three people about exercise addiction. A researcher, a sports doc, and one of those people whose need to exercise became compulsive. They are Heather Housenblass, a professor of kinesiology at Jacksonville University, James Smolliger, associate professor of physiology at High Point University, and Catherine Schreiber, who's experienced exercise addiction and written about that. Together, they've also written an education article for us outlining the key indicators of the addiction and what options there are for treatment. Catherine, you've experienced exercise addiction, so could you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Um, When was it you realised, when was it brought to your attention um, that your relationship to exercise had become problematic? Sure. Well, I first and foremost noticed that I was just very unhappy um, because I was revolving my life around the gym. I noticed that uh, my social life wasn't the same as my peers. Um, And I, at that time when I when I really became aware of it, which was when I was in college, um, I had already had so many people, my family, my friends. Um, I even had a professor approach me and say, uh, do you think your relationship with exercise is healthy? Uh, it seems that it's consuming you um, and people had expressed a lot of concern. So that's how I became aware of it, both, um, you know, people saying things to me, confronting me and also just how I felt, which was awful. Heather, there seems to be increasing interest in exercise addiction now, but is it a new phenomenon or is it only just being recognised now? Yeah, I think just it's a great question. I think just our awareness of it is new and it's been heightened um, by the fact that over the last several decades as a whole society across the globe, we've become increasingly more sedentary and we just don't move very much. So... From a research and a health standpoint, um, we've been more interested in what's the minimal amount that we need to do to be healthy. And we've always thought that more is better. And probably over the last couple of decades, we've realized that there are individuals that are exercising too much and excessively, and it's having negative negative health um, effects. With that, then starts the research and the awareness that there is kind of a tipping point where it does become too much and individuals can become addicted to it. Now, if you look at the diagnostic criteria for these kinds of things, DSM-5, ICD-10, there isn't a definitive description of exercise addiction in there. So, So how is it that you're actually defining it? What a lot of researchers have done is kind of become the standard um, protocol is to, you know, take kind of the recognized criteria and definitions for for general types of addictions and apply it specifically to, to exercise. So the definition which typically look at is it's a, it's a craving for, for exercise or what we call leisure time physical activity. And it tends to be uncontrollable. And when that happens, then individuals tend to have psychological issues that go along with that, as well as physiological physiological issues. And we, we apply what we call the, um, you know, the criteria for dependence um, 
kind of general dependence specifically to to exercise addiction. So that's you know the tolerance, you know the withdrawal. Do you continue to you know continue to exercise despite um, injury or, or being sick? And these tend to be you know the telltale signs because your average person who's a regular exerciser, if they have an overuse injury or their physician tells them, okay, you should stop, you know, running for the next month to give your, you know, body a chance to heal, most people can do that. But a telltale sign is when an individual cannot and they will continue to to run through the pain uh, because they need to get their exercise, their exercise in. Catherine, does that resonate with you? Um, Did you find yourself doing those kind of things? Absolutely. Yeah. And I can remember a few times, I mean, when I, um, I had two herniated discs in my back and I was still running, uh, nearly every day. If not, I was on the elliptical machine. Um, I would go to the gym when I had a fever. Um, I remember at the time I, I was dating someone and they, and they came to the gym and they looked at me, I was on the elliptical, I had a fever and they say, they, they said, do you have a death wish? Can you go home? <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, that, that rings home for me. Uh, that rings very true. Yes. Now, if I turn to you, James, you work with elite athletes, you know, people whose job it is to keep fit, to do exercise, to push themselves. Um, are you seeing the same kind of addiction problem in, in that cohort? Uh, absolutely. And it's really interesting. And this is one of um, the main issues that clinicians have to differentiate is, is somebody doing a high volume of exercise um, simply because they're very committed to excelling at their sport and um, they don't have a specific emotional relationship that's dangerous with it? Or are they actually addicted to exercise and are they experiencing these compulsions and obsessions with exercise and they have to have a regimented routine? Um, so a lot of times in the sports medicine and orthopedic world, uh, we'll see athletes that are um, either have overtraining syndrome, which uh, involves a lot of different signs such as um, fatigue and underperformance, um, changes in sleep patterns, changes in eating patterns and things like that. Or they'll have um, musculoskeletal uh, overuse injuries, uh, such as stress fractures. And so one of the things that a lot of times the clinician will will see is they'll see these athletes and um, they'll they'll work on treating you know the signs and symptoms and try to get them back to physical health. But a lot of times, the same people that are presenting with these just because they work hard and they're very committed, a lot of times they're also the same type of injuries that we'll see in a population that is actually addicted to exercise and therefore they're getting overuse injuries and um, nobody ever really seems to ask and you know figure out what is this patient's emotional relationship with exercise. So we might be able to solve the orthopedic problem or the neuroendocrine problem, um, but we're not necessarily solving the behavioral problem. And so we've heard a little bit from Catherine and Heather about some of the things that are symptomatic of exercise addiction. Um, But for your practice, what kind of flags do you look out for um, to indicate that this person is maybe experiencing those emotional components that you were talking about? Um, so there's there's definitely a few things that you could uh, look for. Um, one is just cues about the emotional response. Um, if you tell an athlete that's actually addicted to exercise that they're going to have to take time off, um, or even if they're going to have to reduce uh, the amount of exercise they're doing, somebody that actually has a, a more dangerous relationship with exercise will have a lot more emotion involved. Um, it might be 
anger. Um, it might be sadness. Um, there might actually be tears involved, um, a sense of despair. Um, you'll see a very distinct uh, emotional um, reaction in those types of people. Um, and the other thing is, too, um, a lot of times you can recommend that for a certain injury, they have to reduce the amount of exercise they're doing or, you know, actually might even have to take some actual time completely off of that activity. And they literally cannot handle it. And also, too, their demeanor during that time of injury, um, you might see somebody that just – it looks like the whole weight of the world is on their shoulders and, you know, they, they might actually be experiencing signs of depression or signs of extreme anxiety if they actually comply with the recommendations and don't exercise. And again, that's not what a normal, healthy relationship with exercise would suggest. You, you can go on with your life and not not have these other emotional symptoms if you actually stop. And that's what we see in the exercise addicts. They They literally have a completely different emotional response. Now, Catherine, uh, coming back to you again, when first, when someone first mentioned that you might have to do less exercise, did you experience those kind of emotions? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I remember when I, I got a stress fracture in one of my feet and um, I, I saw an orthopedist and the orthopedist said, well, you're going to have to, you, you can't do cardio un, until this heals. And I said, oh, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I, I lost myself. I, I, I didn't know what I would do. And I, I didn't follow her advice. I um, went right back on the elliptical with my, with my boot on. Um, and most people thought I was crazy, which I guess you could say that I was at that time. And what was fueling you to do that? What was it that made you push yourself so much? I think that's such a good question, and it's um, it's something that I think anybody who has exercise addiction needs to deal with in therapy. I know for me, there was a very deep distrust of just my own body and also this habituation to a routine that was excessive. And I had been doing this routine and perfecting it and adding to it for a, a decade. And I just, and, and in that way, and it, I, I had built up this tolerance for it. Um, I, I was so used to it. It, it, it was a way of dealing with any difficulty in my life, any difficult emotion. Um, so there was tolerance there. There was the fear of, of withdrawal. What would happen if I didn't do it? Um, and it really, you know, I, I know that earlier in my life I had really struggled with body image issues. So I think that was part of it, but I think also in a, a difficulty tolerating difficult emotions, um, was, was very much a part of it, that, that this was just my outlet at my go-to, my knee-jerk response. Um, and I, I had to train myself out of that, literally to train myself to sit with the discomfort of not going to the gym and then finally get to the emotions that were underlying that and, and the, the deep, deep insecurities that were, that were fueling me. Heather, in the article, you talk about Catherine's experience, um, but you also say that the pathology can fall out differently, um, fall out in different ways, and that that's almost gender segregated. Can you talk us through that? Yes, it, it's it's interesting, and we tend to differentiate between two types of exercise addiction. We call one a primary exercise addiction and one a secondary exercise addiction. Men tend to fall more into the primary exercise addiction category and women more so into the, the secondary exercise addiction category. And the main distinction between, between the two, with primary exercise addiction, the addiction is kind of the main 
um, soul addiction that you're, you're dealing with. With secondary exercise addiction, the exercise addiction is secondary to an eating disorder. So the individual have uh, an eating disorder and then they use the excessive exercise to try to control and maintain their weight. So we differentiate these two groups because the motivation behind the excessive exercise is different and it will require different types of, of treatments and ways of ways of trying to intervene. And in general, men tend to fall more into that primary exercise addiction category and women into the secondary exercise addiction category. And the underlying reasons that Catherine was talking about there, are they similar across primary and secondary addiction or are they coming from different places? You know, with the secondary exercise addiction, you see the motivation coming more so from this need to try to control body weight or maintain a certain body weight. And with, uh, with primary exercise dependence, it tends to be directly related to, to performance. But we do see kind of general characteristics, whether it's primary or secondary exercise dependence, tend to be perfectionistic, um, have low self-esteem. We see more of a, a neurotic type of uh, personality that goes along with it in individuals that we classify more as what we'd say low, kind of low agreeableness. They tend to be a little more structured and stringent in their routine and not open to um, as much flexibility. So there is some commonality. So you mentioned treatment, so let's turn to that now. Catherine, you mentioned therapy there, but how was it that you started to tackle your exercise addiction? It's been a very long process. Um, I know when I was in college, I um, I took some time off to go into an eating disorder facility uh, where I was restricted from all exercise for a while. Um, and that was extremely difficult. Um, and I, I pretty much went back to the gym as soon as I got out. Um, really, for me, it was, it was going through all sorts of therapies. Talk therapy finally settled on uh, something called transference-focused psychotherapy, um, which just was extremely helpful for me. It's something I stuck with um, and kind of explore the motivations behind my extreme behavior was very helpful in getting me to, you know, attempt to dial back my own routine and attempt to, okay, I, maybe I didn't get to the gym today. It's not the end of the world. And to find, you know, I think something else that was helpful for me is to, to get involved in things outside the gym that, that gave me a sense of self-worth in a way lessened the incentive to be at the gym all the time because being at the gym all the time would take away from how much meaning those activities add to my life and, and how much kind of self-worth they add. Um, that's above and beyond how many calories I burn, how thin I am, how fast I am, how strong I am. And James, um, if I may turn to you at this point, in the article, and I think it's really interesting that you say it's not about stopping someone from doing exercise. It's really about changing their relationship to it, making that less compulsive, making them maybe a bit more flexible with their schedule, things like that. Um, why is it that that's more effective than asking someone to cut down? Well, one of the things that I think that um, we see uh, with some of these, especially with these athletes, but it's true with um, even non-athletes, is uh, they don't necessarily have a goal. Why are they exercising? So they don't know when they've actually achieved their outcomes necessarily. Um, one of the things that we see with with a lot of our athletes, especially our distance runners, is they lose sight of the goal of 
what they're trying to attain. And now the goal just becomes the exercise itself. And so I think that's one of the things that we need to modify is make it so that the outcome from the exercise routine is the ultimate goal. And just, again, shift people's focus to what exactly you're trying to achieve. And to achieve that, what do you need to modify? And how successful is treatment? It sounds like a kind of thing that you're talking about there. People might be pretty resistant to doing it, or perhaps even if they are willing, they might find it really hard to actually change that behavior. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a challenge because individuals, you know, who, who actually exercise successfully and have exercise addiction will often be approached by people saying, I wish I had your addiction. I wish I could exercise as much as, as you do. It seems to be one of these socially accepted, um, accepted types of behaviors. And unfortunately, you know, from a, a treatment standpoint, we don't know enough um, about it. Um, you know, the research has tended to focus on, first of all, how do we define it? How do we measure it? What are some of the symptoms and who's most at risk? So we're lagging a, a bit behind in, you know, kind of the intervention and the, the treatment standpoint. Catherine, you've talked about your journey, but if you don't mind, how are you doing now? Did you feel, did you feel that resistance? Have you been able to recast your relationship with exercise? Sure. Well, I think first and foremost, I was extremely resistant uh, to get any kind of help at first. Um, whenever any treatment that I entered into um, suggested that I cut back my exercise, I would I would leave. I'd say, I can't do No, this is not working for me um, because I, I was clinging to exercise or an overzealous exercise so stringently. Um, but, you know, like I said before, I finally, my life got to a point where I was just, I just said this, I'm so unhappy, I have to change something. And if, it, if it's going to be exercise, then fine. Um, I, I need to create a life worth living. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that I still go to the gym very regularly now. I go most days a week, but I do not do it in a way that's, I have to go to the gym before I, I do anything else. Um, I think about a couple years ago, if you had asked me to do this uh, interview and I had scheduled a gym session, I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do it. <laughs> um, you know, there's things like that. I mean, I, I missed out on a lot of opportunities because of how obsessed I was with getting to the gym. It's a lot more flexible now. Um, you know, I still face challenges. Um, the idea of taking, let's say, a week off the gym is still a little scary to me, <laughs> but it's not entirely out of the question. I can see it happening, whereas before, the very prospect would just send me to the gym. I mean, it's ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous, but it's it's really true. Um, I'm a lot more flexible now, and in general, I'm just I'm just so much happier. I, I have a life outside of the gym, and it's it's a wonderful thing. You've been listening to Heather Housenblass, James Swilliger, and Catherine Schreiber. Their practice pointer on addiction to exercise is available now on bmj.com. If you've enjoyed this, subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We're available in most places now. You can also find our back catalogue on SoundCloud, and that's years of free podcast content. Comment or rate us. It allows others to find our podcast and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.